Well, I have to admit up front, really, that I am very excited about this new sermon series that we're beginning this morning. We're calling it Our Spiritual Dynamic, which, I don't know, may sound a little weird to you, I suppose. But if you're like me, you enjoy understanding how things work. Uh, Maybe the kids' shows that uh, do science tricks or, um, you know, mechanical things, how things work, sort of uh, kids' shows are your sort of thing. If that's your kind of thing, then, then hopefully this will be helpful for you. If it's not your thing, really this needs to help you anyway. How's that? But uh, my goal is to pull back the curtain and to show you how God designed the Christian life to work. Very common when someone becomes a Christian that maybe they get some help from somebody, but nobody really explains how the Christian life works. They may tell somebody, you need to do this, you need to do that, and overwhelm them with things they must do, but they never really explain why you need to do it or how those things you need to do contribute to the main goal. And even then, it's probably more common that people don't actually get any help at all when they're getting started in the Christian life. But I want you to know that God didn't um, desire for you to go through life wondering how the Christian life works and being surprised when it works for you or disappointed when it doesn't. He's not trying to devise a guessing game so that you might figure out, surprisingly, what uh, pleases him and what doesn't. Well, that's what the message is about this morning. The dynamic by which we relate to God. And that dynamic by which He then gives us what we need. So we call it our spiritual dynamic because it's action-oriented. It's dynamic. It is a relational, not a transactional thing. And it's something that you can experience with the living God. So the big idea for this entire series, the next uh, four weeks after this one, is this. Constant faith in the gospel produces the kind of life, the kind of church, and the change in the world that we hope for. My main point this morning is smaller than that. My main point this morning is that the Christian life works only when you continue to believe the gospel. So let me remind you of the verses that we read a moment ago. So if you, if you don't have your Bibles open, go ahead and open your Bible to uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17. I'm going to spend most of the time there, and it'll help you to be able to look back and uh, double check that I'm uh, not making it up. So, Romans 1.16, if 
For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In Colossians 2, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so if we're going to talk about the dynamic or the mechanic of how we relate to God uh, we better start with the gospel because that's what it says, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. So let's start with the like number one question. What is the gospel? When we're talking about this mechanic that begins with our faith in the gospel, what is the gospel? The gospel, very simply, is good news. Our word gospel translates the, the Greek word uh, that's in this text um, directly and just means good news. And so when we talk about good news and Christians being people of good news, it's important that we get clear on what that good news is. Most of us, when we hear gospel, think in terms of uh, olden, olden day terms, perhaps what Billy Graham would have said at one of his crusades, or Luis Palau, when they close their message and they give the gospel and they ask everyone to come down. Generally, that's what we think of when we get the gospel, that you individually need to trust Jesus for your salvation. That if you believe Jesus died for your sins, then God will forgive you and will accept you and you can live uh, forever with Him when you die. That's what we typically think of when we think of the Gospel. So I suppose the first question I should ask is, is that true? Is it true that if you believe in Jesus that God will forgive your sins, accept you, and let you live forever with Him. Thank you. Work with me here, people. It's not complicated. It's true. And is it good news? It is good news. It's very good news. The fact that you, you can't earn it, but God gives it to you as a gift in response to your faith, that's good news. But I'm going to subject to you that that is not all the good news that there is in the gospel. But rather, it is a truncated or redacted view uh, of the good news. Because God is doing that, but God is doing much more than simply saving individuals through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He is doing more than saving individuals, but He is not doing less. I think when we shrink it like that so that it's individual salvation, the message that comes across is generally this. 
salvation is of the Lord, the Christian life is your project. And that's the way that that sort of invitational presentation of the gospel sounds to us. But I want you to consider the gospel is more than simply my uh, own personal belief, my own personal salvation, that it's more than that. So think about this. On the cross, God defeated sin and death and the devil. And Scripture is clear about that. And I just need to ask you, is that good news? It is good news. Is that bigger than just me getting to heaven? Yes. Or consider this. By the work of Jesus on the cross and in the empty tomb, God is creating for Himself a people. This, in these people, in this church, in this group, He will by His Spirit dwell with them and be their God and they will be His people. Is that good news? Yes, okay. Some of you are getting the hang of this. Is that bigger than just my own individual salvation? Well, yes, it is. He's creating a people with which to dwell. On the cross and in the empty tomb, God was inaugurating His kingdom and beginning His new creation. He is defining a new way of being human, which is what we talked about last year when we are uh, discussing the book of Matthew. But Jesus is starting a kingdom and inviting us into that kingdom to live a new uh, way of being human. And is that good news? Well, that is good news. It's very good news. Is it bigger than just an individual's personal salvation. Well, yes it is. It's about the kingdom of God. I hope that that's enough to give you at least the, the beginning of the picture. Because I could go on and on and on with the things that God is doing in the world that are expressly um, displayed in the person of Jesus that are bigger than just an individual's salvation. The gospel, the good news as we're talking about it at New Life Church week after week, is that God is at work th throughout history in a way that finds its climax in the work and person of Jesus, specifically in the cross in the empty tomb. So the easiest way, maybe for me to express this more holistic and expansive view of the good news is to talk about it like this, to say the gospel is the story of God's work in the world. And the entire Bible reveals it not just John 3.16. 
And we love John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We love John 3.16, but that is not all the good news there is. And so we want to understand the gospel in its fullest flower rather than just its bud. And so let's go back to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to ask several other questions of the text. But you'll notice it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and salvation. What is it about the gospel that would make somebody ashamed? Think about that. Why would you be ashamed because you believe this good news about Jesus? Well, one of the ways that you might be ashamed is if someone suggests or tries to dismiss you by saying, oh, you believe a myth. Or you're just buying into that old religious story that people made up. And they try and dismiss it as though Christianity is some made-up story and you're a fool for believing it. There are two things about that. Number one is really everybody believes a story. That's, that's one of the premises uh, in this message is that everybody tells themselves a story. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But the story of the gospel, God's story throughout the world, is a different kind of story. And the reality is, and just, just for those of you that are tempted to be ashamed, the reality of it is that Christianity is far less made up than most of the stories that people tell themselves. There is much more with respect to his history and with respect to the physical world and with respect to purpose and meaning in life in Christianity than there is in these other stories that people tell themselves. So I just want to suggest to you, don't let someone make you feel ashamed because you buy into the story of Jesus. This story of God that the Bible tells us can be summarized in four different movements. Creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration or consummation. So that all of history begins, uh, and the Bible presents it this way, begins a creation and it goes throughout history and ends in the consummation when God uh, makes all things new. And I would subject to you that that is the good news that the Bible tells us. And it's good news about Jesus because its fullest and clearest expression is in the person of Jesus. And so think about this for a second. This story of God is good news because creation explains why. Why you were created. It gives you an identity and a purpose that apart from being created in the image of God, you don't have. Human beings don't have. In other words, a, a different story forfeits quite a bit. This story about God is good news because there's bad news, because of the fall. And the fall explains to us 
not just about our relationship with God, but it explains why the world is broken. It explains to us the brokenness in uh, nations and institutions, explains the brokenness in other people, explains the brokenness in creation itself, as well as my own problems. All find their roots in the biblical explanation of the fall. And it's good news because the Bible's clear about it and presents, presents a remedy for it, which is the third movement in the good news, the um, redemption. And this is where all of it becomes most clear when we see Jesus in the cross and empty tomb. He is there redeeming not just individuals, but all humanity and all creation in fixing what is broken because of rebellion against God. More than that, though, this is good news, not just because of the uh, creation or the fall or redemption, but because of the consummation or restoration, the end all of history is moving toward an end where God will make all things new. Where He will make everything right. And that's good news because there we have perfect justice, perfect peace, all of that. But really, all that our heart longs for we find in this final movement of the Gospel. What, God, what, what draws us to more, what draws us to perfection is found when God restores all things. Now this narrative arc, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, not only explains the true story of what God is doing in the world, but it explains the false stories that people will substitute in place of the true story. Again, everyone believes a story. It's just that they'll substitute a different story in the place of God's true story and then try and make you ashamed because you believe the true story. That, that doesn't make any sense at all. But, for instance, let me suggest, if you reject the Christian gospel, you're going to find a different story you might find a material story. A story that tells you that really material things are what really matters. And so the first movement, this creation movement of the story, has to do with utility. Where the things are the things that matter. Then the fall or the second movement of the story would probably be some kind of poverty or lack or where the world is broken because people don't have what they need to have. Or worse than that, it's broken because I don't have what I think I need to have. The third movement of that story, then, is also redemption. It's just that I'm looking to something else other than Jesus to be my Savior. So I might be looking to capitalism or communism, maybe as you know, overarching kinds of ways to solve it. Probably more likely, though, if my worldview is material, I'm looking maybe to the perfect job or the perfect retirement or some other physical manifestation to make my life complete. 
and to fix this lack or brokenness. And then the final movement has to do with what's perfect, which in this, in this false story probably has to do with some kind of consumption or plenty or some sort of satisfaction with material possessions, not just on my part, but maybe on the part of everyone. And so I've created a, an alternate story that has the same arc as the Christian story. Okay, let me try again. If you reject the Christian gospel for, say, a scientific gospel, your first movement would probably not be creation, it would probably be evolution. It would be an origin story for sure, but it would um, not offer identity and purpose, but rather take it away. The fall, or the second movement of the story, probably has to do with some kind of anti-intellectualism or anti-science. That if people would just you know, face the facts, if they simply would believe science, that would solve the problem, but it's the unbelief in it that's broken. Ignorance represents fallenness here. Redemption, then, you might expect, same arc, comes through science or medical breakthroughs or technology or education. So that what's going to save us is knowing more. And then the final movement has to do with perfection uh, that's restoration or consummation. That ultimately is represented by some kind, generally, by some sort of technological utopia where we finally get the answers that science provides us and life is better. And while there are many, many stories like this, I hope that this, these two illustrations help you see that there are competing stories for Christianity and they will impose themselves on you or other people will try and impose those stories on you or others and make you ashamed. And make you ashamed of the true story of God written in the Word. And so, the power of God, or the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And I just want to encourage you that there is good reason to believe it and you don't need to be ashamed. The next question that I think we should ask of this, because you've probably heard Romans 1.16, or possibly heard one, Romans 1.16 before. And Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And there you go, aha, pastor, it's the power of God for salvation. You all need to believe, come forward and get saved in a moment of decision, right? Or is the gospel power for more than just the moment of salvation? It certainly is the power of God for salvation. Even Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Is that good news? Yes, that is good news. Thank you. Okay. Not all the good news there is, but it's good news. 
But I want to suggest to you that this gospel, this good news we're talking about, does that, but it does more. For instance, just look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 1. It's the power of God and salvation, verse 17. It says that it is the power of God to Jew first and also to the Greek. For as it is written, the just will live by faith. Why does it say that? Why does it say the just will live by faith? Why doesn't it just say the just will be saved by faith? It could say that. It could expect that if you just believe it or make a decision or accept the invitation, you will be saved, and you will be. Why then does it press it farther to say the just will live by faith? What is it about this good news of the story of God that demands a life of faith, not just a moment of faith. And I would just suggest to you that it is because this is the spiritual dynamic of the Christian life. You begin by faith, but you also continue by faith. That's where Colossians 2, 6 and 7 comes in. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Okay, that is what you would hear, isn't it? in some sort of evangelistic presentation. You need to receive the Lord. Is that true? Do you need to receive the Lord? Yes, you do. You must receive the Lord today. Okay, there you go. That's my best evangelist voice. How do you do that? This isn't hard either. By faith, right? By faith. You receive the Lord by faith, by believing that God did everything necessary to remove the barriers that you put up between God and yourself by your sin. God did everything to get rid of that so that he might forgive you and accept you and you might be welcomed into his presence when you receive Christ. But Colossians 2, 6, and 7 says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord by faith, so walk in Him in the same way. How did you receive Him? By faith. How do you walk in Him? By faith. So the very same way you took the first step, you take the next step, and then the next step. And all of the steps afterwards, you take by faith. Which means we don't just believe the gospel to be saved, we continue to believe the gospel so that we then might continue to be saved. Which means a Christian life is nothing more than going back and back and back and back to the gospel and believing it again today and believing it again tomorrow and believing it in times of temptation or in times of suffering in finding God's Word to be something that you must believe. It is continuing to find reasons to love God, continuing to find reasons to fit yourself into His story. And so, if the Gospel is for all of life, not just the first step, what does it mean then to believe it? 
What does it mean to believe? That's, that does seem to be kind of critical, doesn't it? I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's important. Or the power of God's salvation for everyone who believes. That seems to be important also. You neglect the belief the gospel's not for you. So you must have the gospel and you must believe it. So what does it mean then to believe? Well, I think it's easy for, for belief or faith or trust. We use all those same words, right? Stir them together and they kind of mean the same thing. Belief, faith, or trust. It's easy for us to misunderstand those and to use them in some kind of a shallow way where we just throw those words out as though they have all sorts of meaning when we're really not clear on it. See, I think that sometimes when people talk about faith, they really mean a decision. In fact, if you have the same kind of crusade evangelism idea in mind, people are asked, make your decision for Jesus today. Or someone might say, I decided to follow Jesus. As though the decision itself is a proxy for faith. Sometimes we see faith or belief as agreement. That I agree with this set of statements or doctrine or something. For instance, someone might say, I believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when they say, I believe, they mean, I agree that it happened. That Jesus did die on a cross, that he did rise from the dead. I believe it happened. Like, I believe that um, Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox. I do believe that. You might say that's the same. It's not the same. But it sometimes substitutes for true faith. Or sometimes people talk about faith as the measurement of things. And they'll talk like this. I don't have as much faith as so-and-so. Or I don't have enough faith. As though it's a quantitative thing that I just need something I just need to have more of. And I would just suggest to you that none of those are the full picture of what the Bible means when it talks about faith or Christian faith. And so it's my hope here for a moment to expand that idea uh, and hope that it helps you. So the first or mechanical way that you need to think about this is very simply that faith involves a promise and a response. This is the way that it works. God says something, and either you believe it or you don't believe it. Either you respond to it uh, wholeheartedly, or you don't respond to it wholeheartedly. And God has always related to people in this same way. Even Adam and Eve, right? Think all the way back to page one. Adam and Eve had God's word. Don't eat from the fruit of the um, knowledge of good and evil. What did the serpent do then? The serpent called that word into question. Did God really say? 
and began to call into question that. And so that was a crisis of faith because ultimately it was about what God had said and what would they do in response. Hebrews 11.3 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Which is kind of the point. Every other religion has a different dynamic. Every other religion says the dynamic here is to do something to appease the gods so that you might be exonerated one day in the final day. Spiritual dynamic of many religions is this. Work hard, be good, and hope for the best. That isn't the Christian message. Because the mechanism by which God is always related to people has been the promise and response. doesn't change once you trust God for your initial salvation. In fact, it stays the same. Just even in the devotional I read this morning, the writer suggested this. He said, if we do not seek Him by our neglect and folly, we imply that He is not sincere and means not what He says. You see, I think one of the reasons God wants to relate to us by this, by this promise and response mechanism, if you will, is that He wants us to trust His character and respond to it that, and, and actually bet that He is sincere and means what He says. So that's, a, that's sort of the basics of faith. Another way to think about it, though, so to, I'm going to try and fill in the edges, turn the diamond, so you can see the different ways that faith refracts throughout the Scripture. Another way to think about faith is this. It's a faith, Christian faith, is simply your affection for Jesus. It is your affection for Jesus. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought it was intellectual. That's the problem. It is a whole person response, including your affections. This is what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And so Peter, Peter parallels. Though you don't see Him, you believe. Though you don't see Him now, or though you don't see Him, you love Him. Though you don't uh, see Him now, you believe. Faith and love are essentially the same track. If you were to say, I'm only going to accept this from the lips of Jesus, I'm ready for you. Because John 16, verses 26 and 27 say this, Jesus is talking to His disciples, In that day you will ask in My name, and I do not say that, you'll ask the Father, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. Okay, that you have loved me is not different from you have believed me. You have loved me and have believed me. Those are the same things. 
And so what it means to believe Jesus is to have an affection for Him, a love uh, heart's response to whatever news, good news it is that you hear. Both love and faith are required to obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Turn the diamond a little bit. Another way to talk about faith would be saying that faith is joining Jesus in what He is doing in the world. That doesn't sound very spiritual maybe, but joining Jesus in what He's doing in the world. Let me just suggest to you Right? That Jesus talks about faith using lots of words that we don't use. Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. What do I do with that? I'm going to suggest you better believe it. You better believe that blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That you're going to have to come to grips with that by faith. But he doesn't say faith. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Follow me? Follow me? That's not what you hear. Taking up your cross, that's not what you hear when you hear faith. But Jesus is is filling in the blanks for us what faith truly means. Jesus said on another occasion, abide in me. Abide in me. Abide, what does that mean? That just means remain or stay. Is that faith? I'm going to suggest to you that it is. That it really requires you to believe that the source of all life is Jesus and you better stay as close to Him as you can get. That's what faith means. All of these fill out our understanding of what it means to have faith. And so it essentially means to throw your lot in with Jesus and stay there. Another way, I'm going to try and turn faith and help you see it more clearly, is to say that faith is telling yourself God's story and fitting into His story. Rather than telling yourself another story and trying to fit God into that one. Again, I've said this before, but my presupposition in this message is that everyone tells themselves a story. It might be a story about family, it might be a story about education, it might be a story about wealth or leisure, but something is going to give us our identities, something is going to make our hearts happy, we're going to tell ourselves a story about that. Hypothetically speaking, suppose that mine was, when I was younger, about sports. That was where I was going to find identity. That's what was going to rescue me from the brokenness that I felt and couldn't explain. Funny thing is, it never delivered on its promise of happiness and perfection. It didn't solve the promise, it didn't solve the issues that it revealed. 
And so faith in the context that we're talking about is telling yourself God's story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and trusting God will provide the end of the story, the answers that will ultimately satisfy. To really believe the story of God means that you reject, and this is important, that you reject substitute stories. That you recognize you can't tell yourself two stories at the same time. You can't have two alternate uh, visions of reality and have them both be true. You have to reject that other story, that false narrative, though it has the same pattern, and trust yourself to the story of God. We call that, the, the, the religious word for that is repentance. It means I turn or I reject the old story and I commit to the new story. One other attempt here to help faith be clear. Faith is relational, not transactional. Faith is not something you give God in order to get salvation. Rather, faith is this relationship that has to do with love and following and abiding. And it is something you do with a person rather than something you gain from a God. So faith then implies closeness and fidelity. It's not just a one and done decision. Several places in the Bible, it, it talks about this. In Ephesians chapter 3, it says that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. If Jesus dwells in your heart through faith, that is, a, that is as close as you can get to Jesus. What faith does is faith unites you with Jesus so you're as close as you can get, as inseparable as you can get. And so I would say, if you don't want to be close with Jesus, don't sign up to go to heaven. Because that's the point of it. The point of the gospel is relational, not just transactional. And so that's why we work over and over and over at reminding ourselves of this good news. It's like memorizing multiplication tables. I don't know, I suspect even in the crowd this size, some of you probably looked at multiplication tables once and you got it. But I'm just going to say it's not how it works for me. I had to go back and back and back and back and study multiplication tables. Same thing with a golf swing. You get a golf instructor to help you with your swing and you're going to be okay until you forget what he told you. And then the next time you're out, you're going to have to swing the same way that he told you. You have to go back to his instruction to remind yourself, even if you don't have another lesson, of what you had learned from him. So you go back and you go back and you go back to the same instructions. That's how the gospel is. The ball flies in the right direction because I remember the good news of the instruction that I had. And so what we have in mind with the gospel is something you go back to and you believe again and you believe again and you believe again. It is a well you draw from every time you're spiritually thirsty. 
It is the spring from which the Christian life flows. The Gospel is the engine which powers everything that you need and expect in the Christian life. After all, it is the power of God for salvation. Anytime you need power, you go back to the Gospel. We're doing this these next few weeks because our church doesn't really believe the gospel like we should. We don't believe that God's as good as He really is. We don't believe that He created us for a purpose and has loving designs for us and for this world. We sort of believe it, but not enough. We don't really believe that we're as broken as we are and we attribute more power and goodness to ourselves than is actually warranted. So we have to go back to the gospel. We don't really believe that Jesus truly fixes and redeems us. We're inclined to think He saves us and punches our ticket to heaven and leaves us to wander around as we please. We're on our own to change our lives. We're on our own to get along with the people in our lives. We're on our own for evangelism or missions or anything else. And then I'd also say, we don't really believe that God's going to win. We don't really believe that He's going to make everything right again. We disbelieve the promise of perfect justice and perfect peace. We fret and we worry with every little ripple of politics or the economy or the environment. And we're told that we should. And so we're trying in this sermon series to make explicit how the Christian life works. It works by active faith in the gospel. When we have faith in what God is doing through Jesus, God then acts. He does the work. He produces the power. He brings the change. So we continually go back and back and back to the gospel. We remind ourselves to believe it. And God continues to work in and through His church. The gospel is like a flywheel. I don't know if you're familiar with a flywheel. It's not something we talk about very often. But a flywheel is, you can think about it as a merry-go-round, like a playground merry-go-round. That's what we're talking about. My, that's my favorite. I remember as a kid, it somehow always seemed to fall to me to do the pushing on the merry-go-round. And my friends would pile on and I'd push. And I remember those first steps were, And they'd start to hassle me, right? Come on, come on, you can go faster than that. And I push and I push. And those of you who have pushed know that the next second turn's easier than the first, and it gets easier and easier and easier until you keep pushing, and finally what you're pushing for happens, doesn't it? All your friends fly off. <laughs> That's what we're trying to do with the gospel. We want to push and push and push and push with the gospel until the things that we need in our Christian life, in our church, in the world, fly off. In other words, the gospel produces life change. The gospel produces mission. The gospel produces service and community. Um, this, is a, this is a booklet that we have begun to use to explain what we're trying to do in the church. Some of you are new to the church and have one of these. Some of you have been here a while and you never got, got one. I think there's a couple outside if you want to grab one. But there's a picture here of the gospel flywheel. 
And the point of this is just to let you know that our intent as a church is to push and push and push and push on the gospel, trusting, see this is, this is the faith that we have as a church, that when we do that, God will produce the personal change, the service, the community, the mission that the church needs to have. And so, our constant faith in the gospel produces the kind of life, the kind of church, and the change in the world that we can only hope for. May God help us to believe it. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank You for the good news that comes in Jesus that we not only can't, but that we don't have to produce a life that's of some noble value, but rather that we can trust in all that God is, all that you have done for us in Christ. So would you help us to believe when it comes time for us to be tempted or to suffer or just to wake up tomorrow morning and say, we'd like to live as a Christian today. Would you give us pieces of the gospel that we can hold on to and believe with all our hearts? And may you then show us the power of God unto our salvation. And we'll thank you because of Jesus. Amen.